Our scripture reading for today is from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Avery. A few months ago, I had one of the most eventful experiences of my life in a coffee shop. And it wasn't a celebrity sighting. It wasn't that I spilled coffee all over my laptop, though I have done that multiple times. Uh, It wasn't that I had an amazing uh, single origin shot of espresso. I love specialty coffee. I've had some great shots of espresso, but that wasn't this moment. It was someone who told me to keep my faith to myself. Last fall, we started a leadership development cohort at Citizens called Surge, and every Friday morning at 7 a.m., we stumble into Flywheel Coffee in the dark, tired and uncaffeinated, but ready to explore some books for leadership development together, and it's been a, it's been a great time for us. One Friday morning, we were met by a gentleman who confronted us, though, when we showed up to the coffee shop. And what he shared with us is that he found it offensive that we were talking about our faith in a public space. Now, to clarify, we weren't proselytizing, we weren't evangelizing, we were just having a discussion amongst ourselves, talking about some books uh, in the corner of, of a coffee shop. But this gentleman shared with us that he believed that Conversations like that, any conversation about faith, should only happen in private spaces, like a church building or a home, not in public spaces, like a coffee shop or even a park. And so he asked us to leave. While not many people would be quite that bold or hold to that extreme of a view, the cultural idea that faith should remain private is super common. And in fact, it's actually becoming common in Christian circles. I read recently in a study uh, from the Barna Group that almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's faith, to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith. In other words, almost half of practicing Christian millennials believe that evangelism is wrong. So that's what's going on out there in broader culture and in Christian culture. But what about what's happening in here, in our church? I believe that most of us do desire to share our faith, but many of us might experience blocks to doing so, things that make it challenging. And so for many of us, we might rarely, if ever, share our our faith. This fall, we did a, this last fall, we did a uh, survey of our church. And the number one way that we want to grow as a church that we identified in this, this survey is in the area of living on mission. And so how do we move from a privatized faith that we keep to ourselves to a public faith where we share about Jesus in word and deed. One way that we move from privatized faith to public faith is through discovering our belovedness. 
that leads us to serve others in ways that demand a gospel explanation, winning over even those who speak evil against us. That's what we'll see today as we unpack 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 12. One way that we move from privatized faith to public faith is through discovering our belovedness. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the text. Father, we recognize that you are here, present with us, by your spirit right now. Father, would we behold you this morning? Would we have eyes to see who you are? How loving and merciful, how tender and kind you are towards us. God, would that rest on us? Would we experience that this morning? And would it change us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So some context for our passage today. This passage is really a hinge in the book of 1 Peter. Peter has spent the first two chapters reminding us of our identity, and now he's going to teach us how to live in light of our identity. He's letting the indicative, who we are, inform the imperative, what we are to do as a response. And that's true of the structure of really the whole book of Peter, and it's also true of this passage. We see that there's a problem that Peter's addressing in this passage. Experiencing cultural hostility, Christians were tempted to compromise their witness. And so he begins this passage by reminding the Christians who they are. We read in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So three identity statements that we'll consider there. First, beloved. We'll come back to that. That'll be a major theme in a moment. Uh, But to focus on the other two, uh, first, sojourners and exiles. The opening line of the whole book Uh, In that opening line, Peter addresses his audience as exiles. And he picks that identity back up here because he wants to draw some parallels between the situation of the Jewish people in exile and the situation of Christians. The Jewish people in exile were scattered in different countries where they were a minority religion. Christians, too, are scattered in different countries where they are a minority religion. The Jewish people experienced hostility towards them in exile, and Christians, too, experienced hostility towards them in exile. The Jewish people in exile lost their homeland in Jerusalem, and Christians don't have a homeland in earth, on earth. Their true homeland is in heaven. As Christians, we don't have a true and lasting home on this earth. All Christians, whether we're housed or unhoused, are all, in a sense, homeless on this earth because our true home is in heaven. In that sense, all Christians are exiles or foreigners. Commentator William Barclay writes, Christians are not permanent residents upon the earth. They're on their way to a country which is beyond. And that's why Peter starts his letter with this particular identity. He wants to make the point that we're temporary residents of the earth in its present state. And so he first of all addresses the Christians as exiles or foreigners. Second thing to notice in the text as we keep moving through verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles 
honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and I want to just zero in on that phrase, speak against you as evildoers. The early church was continuously under attack. They were accused of, as commentator William Barclay uh, summarizes, they were accused of cannibalism because of misunderstandings about the Lord's Supper and the words, this is my body, this is my blood. In fact, they were actually accused of killing and eating their children. They were accused of incest and um, immorality because they called their meetings agape, or the love feast. Uh, And they were accused of having sensual orgies when they met together. They were accused of tampering with family relationships because as people came to faith in Jesus and other family members might not, households were broken up. They were accused of tampering with trade. They were accused of not worshiping Caesar because for a Christian, uh, they would only worship Jesus as Lord. They wouldn't worship Caesar as Lord. And so some of those accusations were true. Christians wouldn't worship Caesar as Lord. Some of those accusations were not true. Christians were not cannibals. But all of them put the church under fire. So how would those beloved exiles be tempted to respond to these accusations? It's easy to imagine two different types of responses. Confrontation and privatizing. Some might want to confront verbally or physically those who are unjustly attacking the Christian community. Others might be tempted to adopt a more passive stance of privatizing their faith, publicly assimilating to the surrounding culture. So to sum up the the problem in the text that we'll particularly focus on, experiencing cultural hostility, Christians were tempted to privatize their faith. Can anyone relate to that? Experiencing cultural hostility, we too are tempted to privatize our faith. And so let's revisit Peter's words and see how they address not only his cultural moment, but our cultural moment as well. We read again 1 Peter 2.11, just revisiting those same, those same themes. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. We are like exiles in our city. As we know, 3% of our city identifies as evangelical Christian, a label that I don't like, but that's how the statistics are done. Probably fewer than 3% are following Jesus. We all experience that, that the way of Jesus and the way of San Francisco are really at odds with one another. And so we must understand who we are in Christ in a really deep way in order to follow him in a post-Christian city. We're exiles, we're foreigners, we're temporary residents in a foreign land amongst people who forcefully disagree with what we believe. Coming again to verse 12, we read, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. It used to be that if you were a Christian, that would generate positive social capital. Back in the day, and it's still the the case for better or worse in some parts of the country, being a Christian would actually help give you an advantage in business deals, it would give you an advantage socially, maybe even leasing or buying a home. It would be advantageous to identify yourself as a Christian, generating positive social capital. In maybe the early 2000s, that moved from positive social capital, born neutral social capital, wouldn't gain you an advantage 
to be a Christian, but also at a disadvantage. You would just be kind of neutral. People would shrug, shrug their shoulders. But more recently, identifying yourself as a Christian is actually negative social capital. It'll be harder in many ways to, in some ways at least, to engage in business, to build friendships, to build relationships, to engage in life in places like our city. And we all have experienced this in some ways. As a Christian, we should expect people to think poorly of us. Notice Peter in this passage, he doesn't say, if people speak against you, but when people speak against you. That's just a part of the cost of following Jesus. Are you okay with people thinking less about you because you are a Christian? Like Christians, in the first century Greco-Roman world, we'll be tempted to respond in unhelpful ways to those who speak evil against us. For some of us, we might be tempted to aggressively confront those who are speaking against us. Last fall, I was at a leadership conference in the Phoenix, Arizona area, and I was on the edge of Arizona State University campus, and I saw a group of protesters identified as Christians showing up with signs and t-shirts and megaphones pointed at dorm buildings on the corner of the ASU campus. And I won't repeat the things that they said. They were horrendous with an emphasis on sexual ethics, but it was just awful. And after a few minutes, some students at uh, ASU got their own megaphones in their dorm buildings. And from the third or fourth story of some of these dorm buildings, started shouting back at the protesters. And it was just this verbal brawl like I've never quite seen before. And I sat in my car almost weeping at how the name of Jesus was being drugged through the mud by the, by the verbal violence and hateful words that were being uttered by these Christian uh, protesters. And as I, as I drove away, I just thought to myself about the juxtaposition between Jesus' merciful disposition towards the woman caught in the act of adultery and the hate-filled, violent disposition of these protesters towards the students at ASU. Most of us, though, won't be tempted to respond like that. Most of us won't be tempted to aggressively confront culture like these protesters that identified as Christians in this story. Rather, most of us will be tempted to privatize our faith. And while that outwardly looks really different, inwardly there's the same root. Both privatized faith and aggressive confrontation are rooted in fear. The protesters were likely afraid of their city becoming more progressive, maybe afraid of the illusion of a Christian nation just kind of crumbling beneath their feet, some of the power that they could lose if that continued. And their fear led to sinful action. And our fear leads us to sinful inaction. We can blend in and privatize our faith because we're afraid of what people think. And I want to go first and just confess that that includes me. 
I often don't take the time to develop friendships with people where I could share my faith. I often hold back and don't share my faith in opportunities where I could. And that's sin. And so I just want to acknowledge that I'm preaching to myself today in many ways. I need Jesus' help with this. This last week of preparing for the sermon was really helpful for me. And we all need Jesus' help with this. Are you living a privatized faith? Are you afraid to share your faith because of what people think? That's you. I have good news for you today. It's the first word of our passage. 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved. God does not want to speak a word of condemnation over you today for any ways that you've fallen short in sharing your faith. He wants to speak a word of affirmation that you are beloved. Author Brennan Manning writes, living in awareness of our belovedness is the axis around which our Christian life revolves. Being the beloved is our identity, is the core of our existence. It's not merely a lofty thought, an inspiring idea, or one name among many. It is the name by which God knows us and the way he relates to us. Who are you? You are a dearly loved child of God. Who are you? You belong to God. Who are you? You are beloved. Just sit in that moment. That is who you are. We fear others when we don't know that we are beloved. Do you know that you're dearly beloved? Not as a cognitive construct, but in the depths of your soul. People are really big and God is small when we don't know how deeply we are loved. And maybe there's some blocks for you this morning to experiencing God's love for you. Maybe there's some blocks in your family of origin or from your past church experiences or in even your theology, your view of God. God, I just pray even now that you would loosen those blocks this morning by your spirit. We have a deep sense of being held and loved by you, even in this moment. When we discover our belovedness, we share our faith, even with those who speak evil against us. Not because it's something that we should do, but because we want to introduce our friends to the lover of our souls. We discover our belovedness. We share our faith not to try and gain God's love, but because we've already received it and are deeply at rest in his love. We discover our belovedness in success-driven city. We're able to risk failure if sharing our faith doesn't go as we hope and costs us socially. When we discover our belovedness, people are small and God is big. When we discover our belovedness, we move from chameleons to missionaries. The most dangerous thing to Satan is a Christian who knows how dearly they are loved. 
So define yourself as one radically beloved of God. Make your home in that love and rest in it with the help of the Spirit. Let it be the axis of your life. That's Peter's first encouragement to Christians in exile. His first encouragement to us. Remember who you are. You are beloved. We continue and read, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh. And we'll just focus on the end of, of that verse. Abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter here is moving from the indicative, who we are, beloved exiles, into the imperative, what we do. Abstain from the passions of the flesh is the first thing that he's inviting us to do in response to who we are. Eugene Peterson, uh, who's one of my favorite authors, sums up Peter's point well here uh, in his translation of it. He says, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. That's great imagery. In the ancient world, foreigners, those in exile, didn't fully participate in the customs and practices of their host culture. Similarly, Peter is saying that Christians should not adopt many of the practices of the culture around them. Peter's not advocating for complete withdrawal, uh, but he is advocating that his readers reject practices of their culture that aren't compatible with their faith in Jesus. And so what Peter's saying is, as beloved exiles, don't let your desire to be accepted by society lead you to privatize your faith and to conform to culture. Rather, let your belovedness lead you to move from fearful, privatized faith into public faith. We continue reading in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I want to focus on good deeds there. Notice Peter doesn't encourage Christians to keep their distance from non-Christians. He doesn't encourage them to fight culture wars to get their values legislated by Caesar. He doesn't encourage them to paint billboards advocating for their beliefs on long Roman roads. He doesn't advocate for them aggressively confronting culture. But rather, he encourages them to serve even those who speak evil against them. So that on the day of visitation, on the day when Jesus returns, the Gentiles, those who don't know Jesus, who are speaking against them, may glorify God and be saved. And history shows that Peter's service and enemy love strategy absolutely worked. Historically, the church thrives when it's under fire, and it certainly did in this era. Commentator William Barclay writes, the striking fact of history is that by their lives, the Christians actually did defeat the slanders of the Gentile world. In the early part of the third century, Celsus made the most famous and most systematic attack of all upon the Christians, in which he accused them of ignorance and foolishness and superstition and all kinds of things, but never of immorality. The Christians abstained from the passions of their flesh. Continuing on. The excellence of their lives has silenced the malicious accusations against the church. Here is our challenge and our inspiration. 
It is by the loveliness of our daily life and conduct that we must commend Christianity to those who do not believe. That last line is so beautiful. It's by the loveliness of our daily life and conduct that we must commend Christianity to those who do not believe. How do we live like that? We live a life that demands a gospel explanation. We live a life that makes no sense apart from Jesus being raised from the dead. And one of the ways that we do that is by serving. That's why Peter in this passage makes such a big deal about good deeds. Now, broadly, it serves as a shared value amongst Christians and non-Christians. When I lived in Seattle, Sonny and I led a missional community uh, we were a part of together, and we really tried to value service and look for opportunities to serve uh, those kind of around our community and connected to our community. And one opportunity was to help my brother-in-law escape the rain and dreariness of Seattle and move down to San Diego. And so we loaded up his U-Haul, and it was a great way on a Saturday for our community to be able to serve him. And while that was a really good thing, uh, I'm really glad that we, we did it. It was good uh, in and of itself. It didn't necessarily, in any ways that I'm aware of, draw my brother-in-law any closer to Jesus. And I share that because service just on its own, in and of itself, isn't a uniquely Christian activity. My brother-in-law and his girlfriend do all kinds of service in various ways, and they appreciated being served, but it wasn't, wasn't going to move the dial for them moving towards Jesus necessarily. So how do we serve in a way that can only be explained by the gospel of Jesus? How do we serve in a way that makes no sense to the world, that makes no sense unless Jesus really is raised from the dead? In the Greco-Roman worlds, it was restraint over passions. That's why Peter makes such a big deal in his context about uh, abstaining from the desires of the flesh. Commentator Karen Jobes writes, Christians who could show that their religion had enabled them to achieve this status of self-control over the passions could use their conduct to make a claim for its truth. That was their context. And while it's essential for our life in Christ that we do the same, our culture couldn't care less about how self-controlled we are over our passions. <laughs> In fact, to the contrary, it can be seen as immoral if we're self-controlled over our passions. You do you. Don't let anything hold you back would be a cultural mantra in, in our place, in our cultural moment. So what kind of conduct then can help us make a claim for the truth of Christianity here and now? For us, I believe it's enemy love. Enemy love powerfully bears witness to the gospel because almost no one is doing it in culture broadly. We're increasingly living in more of an honor-shame society. We're not all the way there, but that's, that's where we're trending as a society. And so when someone falls into disgrace and fails, we cancel them, we shame them, we declare them to be irredeemable, but Jesus invites us into another way, the way of enemy love. 
And this can happen in, in ordinary ways in our citizens' communities, where people who wouldn't naturally be friends choose to love one another. Democrats and Republicans, people with different views on immigration, education, and healthcare, and gun control, and military action, and environmental protections, and climate change, and down the list. In our polarized culture, people with these kind of differences are often enemies who hate each other, or at best, tolerate each other. In the family of God, they're friends who love one another. And that, that gives the world a beautiful picture of what Jesus is like when we engage in everyday enemy love in ordinary ways. Enemy love sometimes happens in extraordinary ways, though. This summer, I was in Charleston, South Carolina, and I got to hear one of those extraordinary stories. In Charleston in 2015, a young white supremacist man walked into Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church and fatally shot and killed nine church members during a Bible study. Afterwards, the young man was arrested and some of his family members came to his bond hearing only 48 hours after the atrocity. And they would have been very justified in not showing up they would have been certainly justified in condemning this man for his horrendous actions. But what happened at that hearing was remarkable. Nadine Corrier, who lost her mother, was the first up in the hearing. And she said this, and I quote, to her mother's murderer, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Other family members followed suit and extended forgiveness to the killer. And it was a gospel witness to the Charleston area and to the whole country. Hateful actions that were intended by the killer to start a race war were not reciprocated by hatred, but by enemy love that united the city and that led to many coming to know Jesus. That kind of love is only possible by the gospel. The words of Nadine Corrier to her mother's murderer in many ways sound like the words of Jesus on the cross. Where Jesus, as blood is dripping from his hands and from his brow, looks down beneath him at the Roman soldiers who physically put him there. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And he looks at us, who spiritually put him there, by our own sin, 
And he says, Father, forgive them. He loved us. Knowing our sin put him on the cross. He loved us when we wanted nothing to do with him. He loved us when we were his enemies. And he made us his friends. He made us his beloved. And he raised from the dead and gave us his spirit, a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy, God, a spirit that cries out that we are his beloved, that we belong to him, that we are no longer enemies, but we are beloved sons and daughters. And so let's not keep this news to ourselves, Beloved, let's move from private faith to public faith. As Jesus has served us, let's serve others, even those who speak evil against us. It's easy to understand, but hard to do. How do we do this? Dallas Willard writes, Jesus did invite people to follow him into that sort of life from which behaviors such as loving one's enemies will seem like the only sensible and happy thing to do. For a person living that life, the hard thing to do would be to hate the enemy, to turn the supplicant away, or to curse the cursor. True Christ-likeness, true companionship with Christ, comes at the point where it's hard not to respond as he would. Willard's point here is that we can't muster up the strength for enemy love on our own. It can't just be behavior modification. It has to come from a deep place of union with Jesus. In our discipleship, as we spend time being with Jesus, we'll become like him, and as we become like him, we'll do what he did. There aren't shortcuts to that. We, we can't love enemies well out of, out of religious compulsion, but we do it out of our union with Jesus, out of a deep sense of our belovedness that reverberates from every corner of our beings. As we become at home in the love of God, we desire to help others to become at home in the love of God. Being with Jesus, becoming like him, doing what he that's why as a church we're focusing on spiritual practices that help us to make our home in the love of God that help us to be with Jesus become like him, do what he did we focused the first quarter of this year on the practice of Bible reading and that was really focusing on helping us to be with Jesus now we're going to spend the second quarter of this year focused on the practice of service as we do what Jesus did this week in Citizens Communities, we'll launch our first practice around service as we seek to find ways to support one another in serving our non-Christian friends and neighbors and coworkers in ways that demand and invite a gospel explanation as the Spirit prompts us and leads us in all of it. And we'll unpack this. Someone's excited out there. Uh, and we'll unpack this together uh, in Citizens Communities a little bit more over the coming weeks. Uh, serving in ways that demand a gospel explanation. But coming back to the end of our passage today, notice that the passage doesn't end 
so that people will see your good deeds and think that you're really good people. It's not how it ends. It ends so that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It has been said often, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Unfortunately, this creates a false dichotomy. Because preaching the gospel requires words and actions. And we often choose one or the other. Stereotypically, but it's often true, progressive Christians will choose actions, and conservative Christians will choose words. We want to be a people who do both. We want to be a people who serve others and who speak of Jesus as we do as the Spirit gives us opportunity. So may we be a people who serve in ways that demand a gospel explanation. May we open our mouths to give a gospel explanation as the Spirit invites us to and gives us opportunity. May we serve those who don't serve us because Jesus served us before we ever served him. May we show honor to those who don't show honor to us because Jesus has honored us even when we dishonor him. May we love those who don't love us because Jesus loved us before we ever loved him. And may we serve our city in such a way that it would grieve if our church was no longer here. Who are you? You are the one who Jesus loves. Who are you? You are beloved. As the beloved, let's move from a privatized faith to a public faith, serving in ways that demand and invite a gospel explanation, winning over even those who speak evil against us. I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage. He says it this way. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life in your neighborhood so your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join the celebration when he arrives. It's going to be amazing. Jesus is coming back. Heaven is coming to earth. It's going to be an unending feast with Jesus. As we close, ask yourself two questions. One, when Jesus returns and heaven comes to earth, who do you want to see at the celebration? And second, what is one thing that you can do this week to serve that person? I want to see the guy at the coffee shop there. I want to see my brother-in-law there. I want to see the protesters there, and I want to see the college students there. When Jesus returns, Who's someone that you want to see at the celebration? And what's one thing that you can do this week to serve that person? Let's pray. Father, thank you.
for the gospel, that we who were enemies, you have forgiven, declared to be your friends, your beloved. God, would that just rest on us in this moment? We have a sense of being held by you, your tender affection for us, the ways that you delight in us. Father, we have a deep sense of our belovedness throughout this day, throughout this week. And Father, I pray for that person that's coming to mind. Would you give us an opportunity to serve them? Would you open their eyes to see how beautiful and compassionate and loving you are? Father, I pray that you would give all of us opportunities over the coming months to serve in ways that require risk, to serve in ways that make no sense apart from you being exactly who you say you are. Father, will we be a people, will we be a church that is known for the ways that we serve? Thank you for the legacy that's been present for so many who've engaged that for so many years would that continue to be the case. And would you do more in the coming months than we could even imagine? We need you. We can't do any of that alone. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us even now? Would you fill us in a new way, a unique way for the good work that you're inviting each one of us into? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.